On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about Dundas. Does the name of the town have to be changed? Because some people are saying the man after whom its name has a troubling past. We'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about why girls are quitting sports at a rapid pace. By the time they hit teenagers, late teenagehood, many have bailed out of sports, those who are already playing. Why is that? And we are going to chat with David Thibodeau, one of the few people who survived the Branch Davidian raid, the David Koresh situation in 1993. A new Netflix series is out about it. He's portrayed in it. It was his book that inspired it. He will tell us his story of being inside the compound during that time. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are in interesting times, if you hadn't noticed. Many of the things that have been standards in our world, things that we have just accepted, well, there are people who are arguing that a lot of things should be changed. This is no longer an issue just about George Floyd. This is now, this has morphed, what's happening has morphed into an issue about everything. Everything is now seemingly on the table. And one of those things is happening in Toronto which is a group of people, seemingly a growing group of people, because it certainly got the attention of John Tory, the mayor and others. This group is arguing that Dundas Street should be renamed because Henry Dundas, the man for whom it was named, has a past that a lot of people would argue if you dig down deeply into it is troubling. He was a guy who was friends with John Graves Simcoe, who was the first lieutenant governor of Upper Canada, which probably explains why the street and the town were named after him. Um, John Graves Simcoe helped to abolish slavery in, in his time. Henry Dundas apparently fought against the abolition of slavery and delayed it for a number of years. And a lot of people now are saying, hey, you got to rename Dundas Street. This is a man who helped to keep slavery alive. He was a racist. Well, if you're going to argue that you're wanting to change Dundas Street, which was apparently, and this is way before my time, but apparently named such because it led to Dundas, Ontario. I guess you, do you have to rename Dundas, Ontario as well? I mean, Andrea Horvath, a Hamiltonian who is the leader of the NDP, you know that. Here's what she wrote today on Twitter. Henry Dundas blocked the abolition of slavery in the UK by years, a delay that cost tens of thousands of lives. Removing his name to reflect our values isn't about rewriting shameful history. We can't do that. It's about rewriting our present day. Rename Dundas Street. Well, I don't know if Andrea Horvath, who may or may not someday want to run, well, she does run for office in Hamilton. I don't know how that would play if she came out and said, yeah, you know what? Let's rename Dundas, the community of Dundas, rename the whole thing. I don't know. I, I have, she didn't say that, that I've seen yet, but I would think that one plus one must equal two. If you're arguing to rename Dundas street, you've got to be arguing to rename Dundas, Ontario. Should we be renaming Dundas? I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Do we need to rename the Valley Town that we all know as Dundas because of the problematic past of the person for whom it's named? 905-645-3221, star 9900. I mean, I don't see how if you're arguing for renaming the street, I don't see how it's possible to separate that from the town. 
I don't, I, 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 it's impossible to me. If, if the, if it's the same person for whom it's named, which it is, you cannot then say one is fine. One isn't fine, but renaming a town, that's, that's not exactly easy to do. But if this guy was the horror show that he is now being portrayed, even though here's the thing about this, uh, that I do find a little interesting. If you had asked 99.999% of people across Ontario, who was Dundas? Nobody would have known. It's only in the last two or three days, probably that people even have any familiarity with this guy, which means was it harmful that it was named after him? If nobody knew what his background was, I don't know. Maybe that you can tell me if you think so. 905-645-3221 star 9900. Do we need to rename the town of Dundas? I want to hear from you if you would be in favor of such a thing, or if you say, no, not a chance, way too complicated, way too unnecessary. Where do you stand? Where do you stand on this one? Give us a call. I would love to hear from you on this one. Um, Keep in mind that if you do rename the town of Dundas, there's an awful lot that goes along with this. All the associations, all the parks, all the signage, all the addresses that people send out, everything would have to be renamed. But again, if Dundas, if Henry Dundas was as bad as he is being portrayed, how do you not do it? What is your thought on this one? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Would love to hear from you on this one. Whether you think it is time or whether you think it is a complete waste of time to do this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. People in Toronto are arguing that Dundas Street should be renamed because Henry Dundas, the man behind it, had a racist background. He fought against the abolition of slavery. And therefore, the street name should be changed. Well, Dundas Street was named that because it led to Dundas, Ontario. So do we need to rename Dundas, Ontario into something else? I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell phone. Sarah is up first today. Sarah, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. So are you uh, in favor or against renaming Dundas? Well, I'm in favor of the idea behind why you would want to, but I think yes. if you start now with something like Dundas, then surely it's going to go to, like you've already got a street in Toronto and a city. And there's streets in all the cities. What if there's a Dundas street in every city? And then it'll just get really, really out of hand, even for the cost side of things, like you said. However, that being said, didn't they change Kitchener from Berlin, like, a long, long time ago for the same they type did. of reason? That it was they... unfavorable at the time? And so, nope, they went ahead and changed their city. Although that I was during the war year. Yeah, that was during the war years. Berlin, yeah. I don't know that it was seen as offensive to anybody. It was just because it was German. And so they, you know, they wanted to change the name. But yeah, your cities have changed their name. The other question I would bring up, though, Sarah, is with your point, I'm guaranteeing you that over the next number of years, we're going to find out about the history of a whole lot of people that may have something in their claw. So how many cities, what if we find out that George Hamilton, who's behind the city of Hamilton's name, has something that is not desirable from his time? Do we change Hamilton? Right. Like, where does it stop? That's the problem. Yeah, I think you just have to kind of educate people as to maybe the past if it comes up. But I don't think you can change everything because then, I mean, it will get out of hand and really, really expensive. And, I mean, take down the statues. Do these outwardly 
you know, things that will really show the the, uh, the idea behind that it's not okay now, but to go be changing everything, like, I, I, I'm against it. Sarah, thank you for a call. I really appreciate it. Let me go to Thanks. Bev, who is waiting online patiently. Bev, how are you tonight? No, Bev is gone. Okay, how about Ron? Is Ron there? Hello. Hello, Ron. Hello, Scott. How are you? I'm great, Ron. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. I think it's absolute nonsense. It's okay. 300 years ago. I didn't even know who Henry Dundas was, and I'm 64 years old. I mean, I don't understand. You know, it's 300 years ago. Why would we want to go through all of this right now to change everything? Well, uh, I mean, look, part of what you raise is, I think, a very fair issue, and that is most people, as I said a moment ago, Ron, would have had no idea who Henry Dundas is, and if we don't know who they are, does it then matter what what they may have done in the past many, many, many years ago? Some would argue, yes. You know, I I, I see that point, though, that if, if nobody knows, then what's the harm? Well, I mean, everybody has a skeleton in the closet. Everybody. You know, and to go back and start doing this kind of stuff, I mean, I'm not suggesting what he did was right, but, I mean, we've been 300 years with the name of Dundas, and all of a sudden we're going to change it? I don't think so. Ron, I appreciate the call. Thanks for calling in. Take care, Scott. Let me go. By the way, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Let's go to Sean, who is waiting. Oh, no, it's not Sean. Tony is waiting. Tony, how are you tonight? I'm doing all right. I'm, uh, I'm getting a little bit, uh, shall we say, perturbed at some of these people that are saying, oh, destroy this, destroy that. That's our history. Dundas is our history. The man that, came, uh, that did his, uh, uh, what did everything over in England way back when, England was a conquering country. It was a warring country. It would go in all over the world. It ruled the world, per se. And those people had to work very ruthlessly against peoples that they were fighting for. And with all this stuff, they came to Canada, whether it's the French or the English or the native or or, uh, whatever is in Canada, all our background was all established through war and violence. And now you're saying, oh, somebody that did something so long ago, uh, they were violent because... But that was the way it was. That's just the way way things were that's how they established territories that's why if you want to talk about israel and palestine they're still fighting over the land and that's what that's what happens you conquer and tony i appreciate the call thank you so much for that point look it, it's th- this is not an easy one i i do i would love to get andrea horvath on the line because i would love to know if she she's argued on Twitter that we should change the name of Dundas Street. And as I say, I don't know how you can argue that Dundas Street should be changed, but not Dundas, Ontario. The two of them are completely intertwined. It's the same person. But I'm not positive that in the greater city of Hamilton, and I'm especially not positive that in the area we know as Dundas, there is going to be an appetite to undo that name that has become synonymous with that area for Decades, decades and decades and decades. And whether or not the name has a connotation that that there's history there that we do not like, that we don't support, 
is the answer to that to say, well, then we must bury that name. That seems to be, for a lot of people, that seems to be the answer. Anything we don't like, all we have to do is erase it from history. And well, see, to me, that's the opposite of how you prevent history from repeating itself. Whitewashing history or clearing history, or whatever word you want to use, that's not, in my mind, how you fix something. But that seems to be the thing right now. Let's tear down every statue of someone who we don't like something they did. And it goes away. Well, I'm not sure that it goes away. I think it just hides the problem. Maybe makes us feel a little better for a few moments, but then what? And I'm not sure that changing the name of Dundas would do anything for anybody, but it's out there. And, And here's my prediction. If there are this many people, seemingly enough that they've got the mayor of Toronto putting together a panel to just to study changing the name of Dundas Street. If there's this many people interested in changing Dundas Street, I'm going to bet you right now that it's going to be not very long before we have this discussion way beyond here, a formal official discussions about Dundas, Ontario. We'll see. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Read about a new study today. I don't know if it came out today, but recently that has some rather surprising numbers. At least they were very surprising to me. It says that one in three girls who have participated in sports growing up. So these are not people who were never involved. They were involved in sports. One in three girls are quitting by the time they reach their late teens compared to one in 10 boys who do the same thing. Why? Well, that's the question everyone's trying to figure out. Why and what do you do about it? Alison Sandmeyer Graves is the COO of Canadian Women and Sport. It is the group that ran this, that did this study. Uh, Alison joins me now. Alison, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Uh, let's. Why don't we just dive into the hardest question right off the bat and work our way backwards? Um, what is your theory on why this is happening? Well, the good news is that we do have some great research and insight. Yes, within this report, but going back a number of years within Canada, that really helps us to unpack what's going on. Because as you say, you've got these numbers, but it doesn't really tell you why this is happening. And what we heard from the girls in this study is that they are uh, struggling with the quality of the experience that's being provided to them. They, the quality of the coaching, the, uh, the design of the sport experience doesn't feel like it's made for them. Um, they're not feeling safe from things like bullying and bullying and other concerns. And what we're seeing is that their confidence falls, their sense of their skills and abilities falls, uh, their sense of belonging falls. And so these forces ultimately force them right out of sport. What? Okay. So there's a lot there that you just said. We're going to get into a few of those things. Um, they're not comfortable with, or they don't appreciate the way it's set up. I can't remember the exact wording you use, but the, the, the structure of this, what is it about the structure? Cause I'm, I'm guessing most girls and women's sports are largely based on the same principles as boys sports, but maybe there's a difference in what provides satisfaction out of that. What in, what in the structure are they not liking? Yeah. What you've pointed to is exactly right. So in general, within Canada, are, uh, the way sport is designed is based on a, a male understanding of sport and, and experience of sport. And we see that in the sense that, you know, women uh, were excluded from sport for a long time and then kind of allowed to come into a space that had been largely defined by men. And still, when you look at the coaching numbers, we see that most, most of the coaches are men, most of the leaders in sport are men. So it's really very much uh, designed and led through uh, men's worldview. 
But what the research shows us is that girls and women often have different needs and interests. And those aren't always very well understood. And so what we are really interested in doing is creating some education, some opportunities for people, number one, just to raise awareness of this, but number two, to start to look at what would it look like if you were to, de to design specifically for girls? How would that look different and how much more effective could we be in, one, getting them into sport, but especially keeping them in sport? Um, you mentioned things like uh, lack of confidence or bullying or body image or those kind of things. I was somewhat maybe a little bit surprised to hear those things only because, as reasons only because I'm assuming many of the girls who are being involved in this poll who are being asked this are playing with other girls. It's not co-ed. And I would have thought that maybe some of the body image things, for example, wouldn't be so much of an issue or maybe some of the confidence things wouldn't be so much of an issue if it's not playing with boys where, you know, there's, there's differences there, it, but those things still exist. Those things still exist. And, you know, we're not sure exactly how many of the girls who responded to the survey were just in girl, you know, girl or only spaces versus co-ed. But I think bigger picture, what we know is that, you know, when you're in sport, your body is on display. And a lot of the talk in sport is about what bodies look like, particularly for girls, uh, as opposed to what their bodies can do. And Even so when it's when girls going, with playing with other oh, girls? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. And bigger and, and more broadly, when you look at media and when you look at our society, you know, the way that women and women's sports are presented in the media when they do show up, which is only at about 4% of all coverage, uh, often it is about what they look like. Right When you see the woman on a cover of a sports magazine, it isn't always in a sporting position. Uh, often it is in more of a glamour shot, if you will. And uh, that really reinforces the, the ideas that girls grow up with and the people around them that, uh, you know, what your body looks like is more important than how it performs out on the ice or in the pool or on the pitch. So there are a lot of different pressures that girls experience both within sport but beyond sport that send them a lot of messages uh, that are kind of incompatible, if you will, with them, you know, out there pushing hard and, um, and doing their best in sports. That, you know, you, you opened something up here that I, I'm a little frightened to get into, but we, and thankfully we only have a minute or so left before the break, so I can hopefully dig myself out if we get too far in. But, um, but no, but the idea is that you talk about, you know, the glamour shots and those kind of things. And I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, someone like Maria Sharapova, who was a okay tennis player or Anna Kornikova, uh, probably got way more coverage than someone who was a better player, but maybe didn't look like them. But at the same time, there are a lot of female athletes who willingly, um, you know what I'm getting at here, willingly will play up that part of themselves, willingly play up their looks. So how does it balance out? I mean, you don't want to say, well, you shouldn't if you shouldn't take the attention you can get, but that then could create the problem for the little girls who are looking saying, I don't look like that. Well, absolutely. You point to the fact that this is a really complex topic, ultimately. And uh, the good news is that there's a lot of opportunities uh, within that to create change. And I think that specific example really uh, signals sort of the game that women ultimately need to play in order to access sponsor dollars and access and gain visibility in which, with which to fund their, their sporting careers. 
Uh, and so, you know, in playing that game, uh, ultimately it, it creates a bit of a vicious cycle, doesn't it? <laughs> Where girls are looking for role models, but the role models that they see oftentimes are in positions that feel this just feels really contradictory to the empowering messages that uh, that we're trying to create within sport, and that's not you know there's no blame on the women and those athletes who are um, who are being presented in that way, but it really just underscores the fact that there are a lot of conflicting messages, and ultimately what we want to create uh, with this report and with our work is an environment for girls that is designed for them, that values and respects them, and that empowers them to be successful within sport, but also through sport in every area of their life. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Allison, I probably should have asked this right off the top, but do you know, does this mean girls are quitting sports or quitting physical activity altogether? Uh, good question. So uh, it's not necessarily quitting physical activity altogether uh, in the sense that we saw about 40% of the, the girls and women who were responding to our uh, survey were, were active in physical activity on a regular basis. So, uh, so they're not going totally sedentary necessarily, uh, but they are opting out of, uh, out of organized activities, which I think when you consider it's one of the most extensive organized activities that young people are involved in, it really, and, and is key to their health, their well-being, and setting them up for success in their lives, really makes you wonder what's going on. Yeah, and I mean, look, I, I am a, a huge believer in people participating in sports. I mean, I, I would love to see all of them stay involved, but I know there would be people who would say, well, does it really matter if they stay involved in sports in in actual sports as long as they're jogging or doing fitness or doing whatever as long as they're staying healthy does it really matter if they're playing a sport you know it's that's a, a really good point and i would say at the end of the day what we care most about is people being active healthy uh you know successful through that absolutely um, but what we also understand is that there are a lot of benefits from organized sports, and there's a lot of investment that goes into organized sports. Uh, and we are really concerned with how do we make sure that girls are benefiting as much from that as boys are. When you look at, for instance, 94% in a global study, 94% of uh, executive corporate women said that sport was important to them achieving uh, in their careers in the way that they have. You know, we want to make sure that girls are getting access to that, not only because it's good for the girls, it's also great for our sports system to have all that talent and diversity within the sports system, and it's good for our communities because sport is where connection happens and it's where for a sure. lot of people uh, participate in their communities. Allison, is this a first survey of its kind? It can't be the first survey of its kind. And what I'm wondering is, do we have any sense of whether this number is going up or going down or staying the same over the years? It's not the first. We did another report of this nature in 2016, so about four years ago. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's kind of pretty much static in the sense that we haven't seen much improvement Um the overall, what we are seeing is trends in, uh, in physical activity and sport across all the genders is going down. 
which is really concerning. And I think that's been a consistent trend for a number of years and we haven't hit the bottom yet. I, I was, after reading the story today, I was looking on social media and I saw a number of responses to this and theories that people had thrown out there that may or may not have any basis. In fact, I don't know, but let me throw one out at you as well that I saw that I thought, you know, again, I, I bet there's a lot of people who believe this and, and quite honestly, it crossed my mind as well. And that is girls and boys are different, physically different. And I'm wondering if there's anything to the fact that, you know, a teenage boy's body that is gurgling with testosterone more often than not finds a need to stay in sports because it's a chance to be aggressive or competitive or whatever else. And girls are finding their social connections in slightly different ways. And so it's simply a question of, you know, we want to treat everybody the same, but we know that physiologically they're not exactly the same. Well, uh, it's an interesting theory. It's not one that I think is necessarily backed up by, by the research. Okay. Uh, but what I, would, what I would say, though, is that, uh, you know, sport can unfold in so many different ways. There is no one single way to deliver sport. And uh, if we're talking about 50% of the population, girls and women, 50% of the population, I think that that actually represents a, a challenge and an opportunity to us uh, to think about, you know, how are we delivering sport? And are we delivering sport through a bit of a, a, a one-size-fits-all approach when, in fact, we could get more creative and think about how do we make sport serve more people? And how do we make sport inclusive of more people, given mm. what we understand it does for people? And if we want to consider how do we extend those benefits to everyone in Canada? And in that sense, not just girls and boys, but other underrepresented groups as well. I only have a few seconds, and so this is going to take way more than that. I apologize. I'm going to make you squeeze it in here. But right off the top, you said about how um, there's a lot of, we don't see a lot of women necessarily. The, the, pe- the way sports are set up and the people running it are still men. Is that because men are holding those positions or is that because we're having a hard time finding mothers to volunteer for those coaching jobs and so men are filling that void and therefore bringing in a men's sensibility? Um, I think it's, it's really a legacy of the way that sport has unfolded over decades now and uh, the way that sport has been designed in a lot of respects. It's also a reflection of the fact that if you don't have girls playing sports, you're not likely to have them entering into coaching roles, and the Mm. cycle sort of repeats. Um, What we do know is that having more women in leadership roles is great for sports, Um, and you just get such value in terms of higher performance of diversity and innovation and creativity and decision-making when you have a greater gender balance. But specifically when you're talking about girls participating in sports, having those women as role models to look up to, to connect with within the sport environment does make a difference. And it's fascinating. we got more of that. It's a fascinating topic. I wish we had a lot more time to talk about it. Uh, Alison Sandmeyer Graves, the COO of Canadian Women in Sports. Uh, people, you can go look up the story and read more about this. Thanks so much for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a story that all of you, I'm pretty sure, are familiar with. And it came to the fore the other day. My wife and I were 
doing our typical Netflix search, trying to find something that both of us would be interested in watching. And we came upon this mini series that was new on Netflix, Waco. And it's a six part dramatization of what happened in Waco, Texas to David Koresh and the Branch Davidians back in 1993. You recall this, I am sure. I guarantee that you remember this. Uh, it was when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, tried to raid the compound, which led to a shootout and then a 51-day standoff that ended tragically with 85 people dying inside the buildings that were burning up. Uh, it was a terrific series. It was a tragic, tragic story. Absolutely worth the watch, though, that series. Anyway, at the end, we're finishing the series, and I noticed that the series was based on two books. One was by the FBI negotiator who was there trying to arrange a surrender. And the other was by a man who was inside throughout the whole thing. His name was David Thibodeau. And David Thibodeau joins me now. David, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm great. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. Um, as I say, I came across this. I mean, obviously I know the story, or at least I, I knew of the story from before, but I watched this document, or not documentary, I watched this, this dramatization. And I, I, one thing that kept coming to mind for someone like you who had been there, and I'm sure you've watched the series. I know you appeared in the series very briefly. Was this therapeutic to you or did this bring back tons of pain every time you watched this? No, you know, I dealt with the pain a long, long time ago, frankly. Um, I, I, I have spoken about Waco so many times over the, so many times over the years that you just kind of get used to it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it never goes away anyway. So, you know, why not? Were what, you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the Go interesting ahead. experience I did have though. I'm sorry to interrupt you. The interesting experience that I did have being on set was on the final day of shooting. Um, well, it was actually second to the final day of shooting when, when they did the gassing scene and they had the tanks come into the concrete structure and start directly putting the CS gas into the concrete structure. And watching that scene being filmed, I felt like I was a witness to history. I felt like I was very similar. The only parallel that I could draw in my head was standing outside one of the gas chambers at Outswitch and looking in the little window as as uh, as the Jews were being gassed by the Saigon mm. uh, B. And the only difference is our government used CS gas. And I really, it, what was weird is even in writing the book, I had read all the autopsy reports. I had to have all the information when putting my book together so many years ago. But I still didn't allow myself to see the kids dying of the CS gas inhalation. I blocked it from my head. That, that may sound funny, but it's something you, you compartmentalize. And Let, let's go back. Said, I, was, I, I was forced to see it. I was forced to see that horrific vision. That was, it, it was, that was interesting. I, I, I don't know how to really, I can't come up with a better word for you. I want to get to all the all the story of what happened there, but let's go back just to the beginning for a second, because one thing never was clear to me from the series: Were you a Branch Davidian? Were you, did you go there because you believed what David Koresh was preaching, or were you there because it was a place to stay? Okay, that, that's a very good question, actually. Now, the term Branch Davidian is something. But that community had been out there for 70 years, and it came from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
and there was a, a man named Howdoff who branched off from the Branch Davidians and st- uh, from the Seventh Day Adventist Church and started the Branch Davidians. So the older people consider themselves to be Branch Davidians. But myself coming there, and I, I had gotten to know David for about six months in Hollywood, David and Steve Schneider, before I, I went to Waco. And uh, myself coming there, and a lot of the younger the younger people that were coming there, we just believed that we were students of the Seven Seals, and that we were learning something that David was teaching, the Seven Seals. We did not consider ourselves to be Branch Davidians. As a matter of fact, I didn't know that I was going to be considered a Branch Davidian until during the siege when the press said the Branch Davidian compound. That was the first time that I really was aware that, oh, we're Branch Davidians. I, I had no idea. And I had been there did- for about two years. Did you consider uh, the, the word cult has been used every single time this has ever been written about it? Did you, in retrospect, was it a cult? I don't consider it a cult. I don't. I don't like the term cult, frankly, because you can look at any early religious movement uh, going back to Christ, uh, uh, Jesus, and, and twelve guys following them all around the middle, the mid, the Middle East, and the the Mediterranean. I mean, that was that would have been very cultish for the day. That's how it worked back then. There was there was when you're tried to study spirit or God, there was always a master, a rabbi, and there was always a group around that rabbi that followed that rabbi and listened to that rabbi and gained insights from the rabbi. That's how it's been done for years and years and years. Different sects of people, um, you know, forming religious opinion. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you look at the Baptists, the Mormons, they all could have, they were all considered a cult, if you will, at one time. Uh, the reason why I don't even use the word cult anymore is because the the Academy of Religious Studies doesn't use the word cult. So you okay. know, we're talking about the scholars. If the scholars aren't going to use the word, then yeah, I feel it's a demonization word. Okay, fair enough. Well, who did, okay, who did you or what did you believe at that time or even now that David Koresh was? Was he a messiah figure or was he a just a teacher? You know, I think the, uh, largely made into a messiah figure by the press. We all considered him to be the seventh angel's messenger. Okay. And I think what happened was during the siege, as as they were playing the loud music and certain things were being done, I think David may have said a few things to make it sound like he was the Messiah, or if you will, uh, that uh, the I'm trying to the lamb. They accused him of being the lamb quite a bit. He had always claimed that he was the seventh angel's messenger, the final messenger from God, before the kingdom of God is to be set up on the earth. That's the gist and the basis of what his belief system was. Do you then think that the the way they portrayed him and, frankly, the people within the compound, do you think that the Netflix series portrayed all of you, including him, fairly? Yes, I do. I think that they actually humanized the people, which is what has needed to have been done for a very long time. Now, listen, there's going to be different stories out there, Okay. My story is that of a musician who was in the group for a year solid. I, I knew the people for a year, and I was living in Waco for a solid year before the BATF attacked and, 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 and the siege was set up and began. So, you know, I might have a very different reality than somebody else who had left the group earlier and decided to fight against David, or I'm going to have a different reality from um, you know maybe uh, one of one of his wives was who had left. I simply told my story, and I told my story out of frustration. I was frustrated because the way that the people that I knew were being represented in the press were not the people that I knew. They weren't these evil jerks that you know were just just evil evil people. And that's all you heard. That's all you heard was bad Davidians. 
good federal agents. It just wasn't the case. Mm. And um, they just needed their story needed to be told. That's how I that's why I wrote I wrote the book out of frustration. I didn't really do it for any other reason. And by the way, for those who have seen the documentary and are trying to picture which character you were in that, uh, you were portrayed by Macaulay Culkin's brother, which, um, you know, that's who they probably, as soon as I saw him, I went, wait, that's Macaulay Culkin's brother. Well, that's you. So just so they know who that one was, who that person was, did, did the, it, visually, did the insight in the doc, in the, in the series, did the compound look like it did in the show? Like if you saw, when you saw that, did you say, yeah, that is exactly what it looked like? It was eerily exact i mean it was crazy <laughs> the, the 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 inside all the inside scenes the scenes on the stage with the music equipment where david would give the studies it looked just like it i mean when i walked into that set i remember being just sitting there for a couple hours on that stage and at one point taylor kitsch even came in and said now oh, look there's tip sitting on the stage it's good to see you there and he had come in to kind of get in character himself so we just kind of hung out for an hour or so on the stage, and it was. I just didn't want to leave it because it was like going back to that time before the attack when things weren't so, you know, when when when, when things were better, obviously. And were things happy? Outside, were were things happy? But before the attack, did you did you consider it a happy place then? A happy place. It was a place where you want to learn uh, what everyone considered to be the truth of God, and there's something in um, all of the prophets of all called the withering experience. So in other words, you're not there because it's comfortable or because, you know, the, you have AC and you can eat anything you want. You're there to study a truth. So there are parts of it, um, if you will, battling the flesh kind of thing that, that, that could be frustrating. But you felt when you were there that you were on the right path and that this, is, this was a, truly a message from God. And where else would, would you want to be? So happy, yeah, I, I would say yes. You know, the community had some very wonderful and fun times together, but we spent a lot of time working and building that place together as well. So, you know, it wasn't all fun and games, to be honest with you, but it was a very valuable experience. Where this story um, turns, obviously, and where it begins to head down the dark path to where it all ended up is the allegation that the ATF and the government said that the compound was filled with weapons. Was that true? What had happened was about just about the time that I came to Waco, David Koresh uh, was at a gun show and he met someone named Henry McMahon, who was a licensed firearm dealer. And he had um, uh, Hewitt handguns uh, was his company. And to make a long story short, there, you know, some of the guys had their own firearms, but there certainly weren't. There wasn't a large amount of firearms. <clears throat> but uh, Henry started to show David where, because of all these different, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Laws that are being passed. Certain ammunitions, like two, two, three rounds, are going up in value. AR-15s, AK-47s are going up in value. So uh, Paul, I think it was Paul and Dave. I wasn't really in the gun thing too much. But I know that they looked at it as a business, and they started to buy um, firearms, and they started to sell them legally. They got all the uh, the paperwork that they needed, and they were, you know, they I think became a registered firearms dealer. So they were buying and selling legally at the uh, at the gun shows because they considered a lot of those firearms to be their inventory. 
The, uh, the FBI afterwards did an inventory and said there were something like 300 illegally modified weapons and hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition when they went in and scoured through the rubble. Does that make sense or is that an exaggeration? That doesn't make sense from what my understanding, and I'll be honest, it's been a long time since I've, I've looked into this again. Um, for the, what I mean is the, speci- the, the specific um, ATF yellow sheets, if you will. Um, I believe that four of them were, were fully were full auto or were automated. Not that many. I think the number that they found was 300 or so guns. I thought it was 180. I'm going to have to look okay. at that. I, I wasn't I wasn't prepared. Sorry about that. That No, no, no. That's but okay. I, it seemed to be a lot less. And my whole, it doesn't matter. You know, if you have a, a, a full auto weapon without the proper tax, technically you're obviously in violation of the law. And therefore that, that should probably be dealt with. My problem is, is they never allowed anyone other than the FBI people to look at those firearms and to be able to get to um, investigate them. And I know there was a time during the trials where we were trying to get an independent um, individual to be able to inspect the firearms, and, and that was not allowed. The government would never allow us to look at those firearms. So, again, yeah. we're, taking, we're taking all the information from the people that looked in the camera for 51 days and, and lied to the American public over and over and over and over. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting with David Thibodeau, who is one of the survivors of the Waco raid, the Branch Davidian, the Mount Carmel, call it as you wish. But uh, he is one of those who survived the ATF raid and standoff and is featured very prominently in the Netflix series Waco because his book was one of the inspirations for it. And uh, David, just before the break, we were talking leading up to everything that then happened. Um, they obviously, with, with the idea of guns and what they believe, the ATF, the FBI, what they believed were the guns, they wanted to arrest or take in David Koresh, as I understand it. And the official version is that he never left the compound. Therefore, they couldn't do this. This meant they had to go in and serve a search warrant and have a raid. I talked to a friend of mine who lived in Waco at the time. I talked to him today and he says, listen, David Koresh was out in the city all the time. If they had wanted to pick him up, they could have easily grabbed him. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Let me do you one better. Um, and, and one of the ATF's documents, and, and this was this was reported in the papers as well, and one of the ATF's own documents about nine, exactly nine days before the raid, two of the agents went with David Koresh, two of the undercover guys, they went two miles away down the street to a public firing range, and they shot guns with him. So not only could they have gotten him, um, but they always, he's in a lot of interviews, they said every time, one of the, one of the agents said every time I exited the building, I felt like they were going to shoot me in the back. Well, then why would you go to a firing range with a guy and give the guy a gun and shoot with him if you were so afraid of him? It just, their, their story does not hold water. It's never held water. Um, the entire thing with them has been a CYA, um, if you will. Uh, um, they, com- they completely lied to try to cover up themselves and the mistakes that they made the atf specifically and well and this and this friend of mine who again who was living in waco at the time also said and this is his comment that um uh nobody down there was really scared of you guys that you were a bit of a curiosity because there was a lot of news coverage but nobody was living in fear of you but nonetheless uh there are these guns the atf decides they are going to come in and this brings us to what happens because Fair to say that the 51-day standoff and everything that happens down the road 
doesn't occur unless there is a shootout with the ATF when they first came in. Fair? Yeah. And Wait, this is. Can you, you repeat your question again? For, I, well, yeah. The, the, everything that happened, the 51 day standoff and the fire that eventually killed all the people, none of that happens if there's not a shootout in the first place when they came in the first time. Absolutely. All the, he was, David Christian was the only person on the search and arrest warrant, period. He was the only one. They should have just got him while he was jogging in front of the. And he jogged in front of the, uh, the surveillance house every day. It just didn't make any sense. They absolutely could have gotten them. There's, there's no question about it. The, the big issue, the big first issue, though, the big disagreement comes about why the shootout started. The government says you guys shot first. I believe that uh, you and others who were in there say, no, the agents shot first. What, what is the truth? Well, the truth, and you have to kind of go back to the trials in San Antonio uh, to really understand the truth. We always always since the very beginning felt they came in shooting first um uh, my friend who was at the back of the building uh, kevin whitecliffe saw the the helicopters coming into the back of the building shooting they actually shot peter jen on the water tower and then through um through uh, water tanks in front of winston blake's window uh, bullets went through the water tanks and killed winston blake who was who was uh, sitting on bed eating, uh, finishing his breakfast. He had a piece of French toast found near his head uh, when he was killed. Uh, anyone at the back, I'll say that the helicopters fired first, but the people that were all at the front all said the same story, that Koresh had the door in his hand. He said, hold on, there's women and children here, and that the people running toward the door screaming started shooting, and that's when the door flew back in his hand for the velocity of bullets hitting it. He fell back. Uh, Perry Jones, a 70-year-old unarmed, unarmed man that was with him at the front door, went down screaming, and that's when some of the people that were with David started to, to fire back. But in the trials in San Antonio, the indications were the first shots were shot at the dogs. We had five Alaskan Malmutes in a penned-up area, and there was a team of agents, and their job literally was to go and suppress or kill the dogs, and that's the first thing that they did. David, this may be a, a very silly question. I don't know. But um, prior to that, had you ever seen anybody shot or killed before? No, I hadn't. It was quite shocking. This, yeah. Um, so you're, yeah, you're, I, there, you're there thinking this is a, a religious place where you're learning, and, and all this stuff starts to happen in the span of seconds. Um, what is the immediate... I don't. I have no clue what the immediate thing would be that would go through someone's mind when they are now suddenly in the middle of something like this. Like, how long did it take to dawn on you about how serious this all of a sudden was? Oh, instantly. The second that, that, that firing started, I mean, I was down on my face just um, trying to not get hit. I actually went into the gym, the workout room that we had because I figured it was central and safe from some of the gunshots, but I was down, you know, I was down on my face. And, I, you know, a good part of that was living in Hollywood. I lived for Hollywood for about a year or two before I met David. And coming from Bangor, Maine, which is very rural, when you go to a big city and you start hearing gunshots, you learn to duck under cars or whatever because you don't know who's shooting and you don't want to wait and look around to find out. So... You know, being a musician, I had a very good sense of uh, survival. <laughs> yeah. When Now, my understanding is that David Koresh, though, had taught as part of his ministry about an apocalypse that was going to come. Uh, and, and you can tell me if that's true or not, but did you believe or did the people believe that this was that? 
No, it is true. Uh, actually, the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church, and, and specifically the Davidians when they branched off and had their offshoot, believed that eventually the, the authorities would fight against the message of God. That's always been there. There's always been talk of King of the North, a lot of the, um, um, I don't want to say apostles, I meant Old Testament prophets um, talked about talked about the message of God being fought against by the powers that be, if you will. So yeah, no, there was always um, aspects of that, and I think what Koresh did was he took the foundations of the Branch Davidian Church and moved it into a whole new area when he started to really develop the Seven Seals, talk about the Seven Seals and reveal the Seven Seals to the group of people, then everything, you know, kind of escalated. Um, you know, definitely they want to be prepared for things. We were building a, a tornado shelter underground. Um, we had we had extra water on hand because you know, we just didn't know what was going to take place. Nobody knew what the time of trouble was going to look like. Just every prophet talks about the time of trouble. Our group was prepared to go through that time of trouble, no matter what it might have been. There were reports afterwards that uh, at least two of the people in the compound who were first hit by ATF bullets were later killed by people in the compound who shot them from close range. Is that true? Yes, that is true. A couple of the people, um, well, I'm trying to think who the second one was. I know for sure Perry Jones. I can speak to Perry Jones because I can't think of someone else who was shot after. Uh, Perry Jones had a stomach wound. And what had happened is when we negotiated the ceasefire uh, with with the ATF through Wayne Martin and through, I guess it was the film crew is what we found out later, um, that was on the ground. When they negotiated the ceasefire, they said, listen, we're going to come in and get our people, and then we'll send medical units in for, for, and for your people. Like, okay, that's fine. They came in, they got their guys, they left. And then we didn't hear anything from the ATF. It was like, hey, what about our people that are suffering? And it was just like, you didn't hear anything. So it's like, well, thanks. You guys negotiated that you'd come in and get our people or we'd send them out or something. And then we don't hear anything from them. So that was, I think, one of the first kind of lies from the government where we could definitely tell that these were not going to be people of their word. They were not going to live up to their word. And that, that troubled a lot of the people. But... Uh, I know Perry was yelling, and uh, he was in intense pain, and he asked to be put out of his misery. And so one of one of the individuals did put Perry out of his misery. That that did take place. Is that something that it, now, in retrospect, I mean, at the, I don't know how you deal with that. Do you, do you look at that now and say, I'm okay with how that played out, or is that something that really troubles you? How no, that happened? No, frankly, I was I wasn't okay with it then. Um. I'm not a medical person personnel. I don't, you know, I don't know what a fatal wound is or not. But I, what I do know is the group of people that were together, especially Perry. Perry spent his, all, his entire life in that community. He had studied under uh, Ben Roden and Lois Roden all the way up to Vernon. His whole family, you know, he, he, his, his family had been members of the community since they were born. So Perry was a lifer. I don't honestly, I didn't see him. The people, okay, let me put it to you this way. After we were shot and uh, and fired against, nobody wanted to go out to those forces. I mean, you know, I, I was thinking that they would send, you know, the people out for, for the medical attention, but then I guess we didn't hear back from them. But I, I couldn't see Perry going. 
frankly. If I, I, David would have literally had to say, Perry, you need to go, and then I don't think Perry would have gone. I don't think he would have left his family uh, under any circumstances. So I honestly believe that Perry, that his decision was final and that he would rather die there than to go out to the forces that just shot him. I believe did that. You, did you realize at the moment, uh, and we've got to take a break in a second here, but did you realize when all this was happening right at the beginning that there were also ATF agents that were hit and that were killed? Uh, so now, you know, obviously it was chaos and it was a mess inside, but the, the level of mess that this thing really was had ratcheted up because now there's government agents that were killed. Did you guys know that? Yeah, we could see them walking away and carrying the wounded away and carrying, uh, most individuals could walk away with the help of another individual, but there were a couple where it took four because they were, their bodies seemed to be lifeless. And at that point, did you expect, and at that point, did you realize or expect or think this could end very badly? Listen, I knew the second that shooting began, this is going to end very badly. Um, frankly, the fact that an actual siege ensued and it went on for so many days was an encouragement. And we literally thought they were going to come back with a second wave that night. Yeah, I totally thought, especially as a young male. I, I thought I was a goner for sure, armed or unarmed. And, you know, I made it a point to not be armed. Um, I for sure knew that they were going to come in and, and kill me. Yeah. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with David Thibodeau, who was one of the survivors of the Waco raid back in 1993, wrote a book about it, which is now a Netflix series. David, when all this starts happening, and you're inside the building and people are hurt and dead and whatever else. Was there a plan at that point? Did members want to surrender or did you want to surrender? Did you want to walk out or was it now you were past the point of being able to do that in your mind? No, you know, I, I, I did want to surrender, but, but with the group, I didn't want to go out on my own or anything like that. It was just like, um, you know, I was, I was in, in a sense, I was committed to the group. I, I've been, studying a Bible with these people, living with these people for the, a solid year. I helped build the place. Uh, the place is a part of, of, of my community, and I felt like we were attacked. I felt like David made many, many uh, orchestrations to the feds early on before they attacked to work things out with him, and, and they, they, they chose not to take those. Um, and they, they chose this raid, if you will, this raid situation. So, you know, I mean, we we're all pretty solidified. Plus, when you're studying the scripture and you start to see things coming true, like there was literally a few months before I was I was on the roof with David. We were working on the on, on I was shingling, and he said, "Tibbs, what are you going to do a few months down the road when there's tanks running up and down the Double E Ranch Road?" Huh. I said, "David, that's never going to happen." I mean, it's, you know, it's like I my dad was a history teacher that hadn't happened in American before, where military uh, units were used against civilians. I just never thought that would happen. And six months later, or a few months later, I was, I'm watching tanks running up and down the W Ranch Road. Uh, same thing with Kathy Schroeder. He asked, he said to Kathy one day, what are you going to do when there's helicopters buzzing the building? Said, Again, that's never going to happen. There's not going to bring helicopters onto this property. And first thing they do is bring helicopters and, you know, 75 armed agents dressed in black uh, coming in and shooting at the building. Was there a... 
was there a suicide pact within the group ahead of time? Because obviously that's, you know, that no. when, when things go no. totally south, they say you no. guys all committed suicide. No, there was not a suicide pact. As a matter of fact, uh, according to the scripture, you, you, you can't take your own life. You have to, you have to live your life uh, until your life expires one way or another. Um, that's kind of a prerequisite of, of, of people that are studying the scripture and following God. You know, personally, I believed at the, at the end, on the last day, that some people chose to shoot themselves rather than to burn to death. And, you know, that's between uh, um, them and God. I obviously think if you're going to—the only reason I exited the building was because I thought I was going to burn to death, and I, would, I thought they were going to shoot me, but I would have I I preferred to have been shot than to have burned to death. So, yes, I'm going to say no to that. That was not, there was not a suicide pact. Because there was a senator who investigated this after. I know you've heard these quotes before, and, he, and what he said was this, I think when people are intent on burning themselves up, there's not much you can do about it. I mean, that is the— official position that you guys started the fire what did you see inside when the tank showed up and they started putting gas into the building what was going on well i'll answer your question but you just kind of inspired me let's talk about the final word on waco and that was bill clinton bill clinton was sitting in the in, and you know was talking to news reporters in the rose garden and he said if a bunch of religious fanatics want to kill themselves what can the federal government do about it and that was the last you heard about Waco. Literally everyone in the entire country moved on after that statement. The problem that I have with that statement is the fact that when you look at the autopsy reports, there are several autopsies that show some people inside died from bullet wounds to the center of their head and the center of their chest. Also, uh, on the Rules of Engagement, a famous documentary that was nominated for an Oscar, so this is an award-winning documentary, came out about Waco. And a lot of it was the FLIR tape. The uh, FBI had a plane flying above the building in a circle that had infrared technology, which means that everything that is hot shows up as white. It looks like a black and white video almost. And next to two tank positions, we have fully automatic weapons fire only at the back of the building where the cameras are not allowed. And there's something like, I think the expert counted 63 different gunshots from those positions being shot into the building. So if people are being shot trying to escape coming out the back, and even the coroner's office said, um, we believe that this was not a mass suicide. It looked more like a mass homicide to us. So yet you know, the official, but yet, David, the, the official government position after the congressional investigation was that the, the agents didn't start yeah. the fire. They didn't fire a single okay. shot that day. Okay. Uh, they didn't the improperly use the military. Position. They didn't have a cover-up. It was, And everybody was exonerated right up to the president and, and the attorney general. Yeah. And don't you think that's ridiculous? And all you got to do is watch the videos, my friend. You know, tanks going in, destroying, taking apart parts of the building, putting in a two-day. Uh, they, they, uh, they put in so much CS gas in that building in six hours. They put a two-day supply of CS gas into that building in, in six hours. The propellant for CS gas is methylene chloride, which is flammable. Six pyrotechnic devices were found in the evidence locker in Austin, Texas. These pyrotechnic devices originally were not found because they were mislabeled silencers. So the government definitely had pyrotechnic devices that were um, found in the building that day, you know, after, after when they were doing their, their, their reports. So I don't have any faith in any government report. I'm sorry, hmm. but little brother screwed up, big brother came in, kicked a bunch of butt, 
and then Big Brother's going to write the report. Yeah, I don't have any faith. I don't care what any senator says. A 13-year-old boy who has who's, who's gone hunting with his father can look at that clear tape and know that that's, that that's gunfire and not sunlight reflections on the flare. I'm sorry. All you got to do is look into it a little bit. Do a little bit of research. And, you know, why do you think there's so many questions all these years later about the FBI and the, and the government lying and covering up? The government always covers up for themselves. It's a, C- it's a CYA, it's a CYA uh, experience here. If the, if the, and, and just think about it for a second. If the helicopters did fire into the building, in America we have something called the Posse Comitatus Act, which basically it's a law that states that, that, the, that law enforcement cannot use military equipment against its citizens. Helicopters and tanks are military equipment. So if the helicopters truly did fire at the building on the first day, then the ATF would have been in violation of that. And constitutionally, had it gone to court, they just may have lost on that grounds alone. Let me read you one more quote, and, I, and I'm guessing that this is not going to thrill you too much, but I'm sure you've heard this one before as well. It's by a California senator named Tom Lantos. Uh, here's what he said afterwards. Only the lunatic fringe still clings to this notion there was a giant government conspiracy that brought about this nightmare. The most plausible single explanation for this nightmare is the apocalyptic vision of a criminally insane charismatic cult leader who was hell-bent on bringing about this infernal nightmare in flames and the extermination of the children, the women, and the other innocents. Uh, that means that if, and back to not him quoting anymore, that's the end of his quote, that means, David, that uh, according to him, you are the lunatic fringe course like i said cya listen these guys are going to cover themselves at any cost there's a uh, a very famous uh u.s senator in the 1800s senator henry clay said the devices of power and its minions are the same in all countries and in all ages first it marks its victim denounces it exciting the public hatred so it can conceal its own abuses and encroachments well, absolutely, they're going to blame everything on David and Davidians. But you know what? David didn't gas his kids to death. The FBI gassed the children to death. Just stop and think about that for a second. America, who, who when, when over in Syria they were gassing children, we went and attacked them, gassed its own people to death. And then the tanks went in and huge, huge holes that went all the way through the building to where the concrete structure was and put so much CS gas in that concrete structure where they knew the kids were, where they knew it would affect the kids. Imagine how terrifying that would be. How, you know, even soldiers that are being CS gas in a controlled room sometimes run into walls and can't find their way out. So how much more for civilians and kids being gassed? Are they really supposed to come out of the hole that they've just been gassed? Really? You really expect them to come out of a concrete structure after you've gassed them nearly to death? Please. It's, it's incredulous. It's ridiculous. And it doesn't hold water. And like I said, all you got to do is do a little bit of research and you can see the, ridiculous of, the ridiculousness of Lantos' statement. And actually, I find it offensive. Back to these government people who weren't there, who did you know whatever research they want to do, how they wanted to do it, came to that conclusion. They obviously did not. You know, there's just there's just another side that is not being presented. I don't see why this is a problem for people. You don't think the government lies to you all the time? 
government is always being caught in lies. Look at Snowden. Look at him finding all the information about how uh, the American public is being spied on constantly through its own government, through text messages and our phones, you know, the, the, the way they can tap into any phone and listen to everything that's, anything that's being said in the room anytime they want. You know, these technologies exist. You because though, kind of, you do that absolutely, David. Because of the way this has been written and covered and positioned and everything else over the years, when people learn who may not know you well or not may not know you at all, when people learn that you were there and you were in there because it's such a famous event, such a notorious event, what what response do you get immediately when people find that out? It's much better now. <laughs> <laughs> what did it used to be? That you are not. No, people. No, people are generally very interested, and and then they generally wanted to know more. But for me, what I would used to do is, as I was going through life and making friends, I never talked about it to people. I always, I didn't deny it, but I always let people find out because I wanted people to get to know who David Thibodeau was. Because the hardest part for me. In any room that I've entered in, especially directly after Waco, it was the fact that if they knew that I was there, who I was, that they would have preconceived ideas and notions of who I who, who I am, David Thibodeau. So a lot of people expected me to be some kind of religious freak, some kind of radical. You know, and the fact that I was just, you know, an average normal person that had an intense experience um, – usually people wanted to be my friends after they got to know me because they couldn't believe that I had been through something like that and didn't talk about it all the time. So, like I said, you know, there was a, a period of time where I went all around the country giving talks about Waco out of frustration. I was just so frustrated with the way everything was being presented and the lies that were being presented, especially with, with congressional hearings and just what a complete sham I, I considered those to be. Have you been so, back? You know, Have you been back to the site? Oh, on several occasions. Actually, Why? There's so much. There's so much. Go- um, well, because it's where a lot of my friends died. It's hollowed ground, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, there's a feeling that you get when you're there. I was actually staying on the property for a period of time, talking to people that were coming to learn of what happened at Waco. And I had kind of a, we've had a falling out with the with the older gentleman who's basically strong-arming his way onto the property, saying that he is the current owner. He isn't. And uh, we're in the property, we're in the process of some legal matters to find out. I, I personally want the property to be made into a historical site that nobody can buy or sell or mess with it again. It needs to be a state historic, a Texas state historical site, and it needs to be preserved. And this other gentleman doesn't feel that that uh, that way, so I'm trying to uh, convince them, if you will. David Thibodeau, uh, I would encourage everybody, if you have Netflix, and who doesn't, um, watch Waco. Uh, it's based on David's book. And again, um, if you doesn't take long to figure out who he is in the show, Macaulay Culkin's brother plays him. And, and also, you can see David, it's in the sixth episode, right? When you're in court, you're sitting on the bench, correct? Yes, the big guy. That's so the very last scene. I'm, uh, look yes. for David. Yeah, look for the... David there. Uh, hey, I no, really I... appreciate it. So we, go ahead. We talk about just for, I know we got to go, but uh, you know I have a website that I've created, wacosurvivors.com, and we got a place there for. Well, you can get a um, you can get some shirts, uh, books, that kind of thing. I, I don't really care about all that. Uh, there's a donation page, and it has to do with us trying to get that property and make it a state 
a state site or, if you will, a historical site. So WacoSurvivors.com, yeah, even if it's just five bucks, every little bit helps to, to, to make that hollow ground that no one's going to be able to touch. And I think that's a very kind of an important thing right now. WacoSurvivors.com, the book, by the way, you can buy on there. It's called Waco, A Survivor Story by David Thibodeau. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to talk today. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.